European Heart Journal issue at a glance. Volume 36, issue 40. Focus issue on epidemiology. By Professor Thomas Luscher. Epidemiology and clinical outcomes. Epidemiology revealed important differences in the onset and frequency of cardiovascular risk factors and disease among males and females. Both the presentation of symptoms as well as the natural course may differ among men and women, for instance, in coronary disease and heart failure. Furthermore, gender may modulate the effects of therapeutic interventions, for instance, the response to antihypertensive drugs and possibly that to antiplatelet agents. However, the role of sex on the effect of cardiovascular drugs is still unclear. In a timely current opinion article entitled Gender Differences in the Effect of Cardiovascular Drugs, a position document of the Working Group of Pharmacology and Drug Therapy of the ESC, Giuseppe M. C. Rosano from the IRCCS San Raffaele Hospital in Rome, Italy, summarizes with European colleagues the current knowledge on the gender differences in pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of cardiovascular drugs in this position paper. Women and men differ in drug absorption, distribution, metabolism, and pharmacodynamics. The response to cardiovascular therapy may further be affected by the interference of endogenous hormone levels, different body weight, and proportion of fat. Of note, adverse effects of cardiovascular drugs and pharmacotoxicity are more frequent in women than men. However, evidence-based cardiovascular pharmacotherapy in women is still lacking. In order to optimize the efficacy of cardiovascular drugs and minimize the higher incidence of adverse drug reactions in women, the development and implementation of gender-specific pharmacocological guidelines are needed as recently proposed. Upcoming pharmacocological research should aim to further clarify the influence of gender on cardiovascular drug effects and, for this purpose, to include in all phases of clinical trials patients from both sexes according to gender pharmacodynamics. Epidemiological and, in particular, clinical research is faced with increased ethical requirements not only as regards to commonly discussed conflicts of interest, but in particular as regards to the conduct, analysis and publication of clinical studies. Although welcomed in principle, too much ethics could also be considered unethical, as it may hinder innovation and in turn optimal treatment options for future generations. In a second current opinion article, Research Ethics Needs Fine-Tuning, Not Rigidity, how to Promote Evidence in Neglected Patient Populations by Rethinking Informed Consent, J. Wouter Ukema and colleagues from the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands discuss this aspect. The authors propose to place the frequently rigid division between scientific research and patient care in perspective in order to be able to perform optimal research in the interest of our patients, also in difficult and acute subgroups. The authors argue that under certain conditions, prospective randomized trials should be conducted without immediate consent. This would close existing gaps in the evidence on the management of commonly neglected patient groups, i.e. those in cardiogenic shock, among others, by better representing the daily practice population that will receive the therapy. In addition, simplicity and transparency will likely increase the willingness of patients to participate in studies. 
Although hypertension is commonly easy to manage with current treatment options, some patients may be resistant to current antihypertensive drugs. The latter group has attracted increasing attention with the advent of renal nerve ablation and baroreceptor stimulation. As Franz Messerly from the St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center at Columbia University in New York points out in his timely clinical review, Resistant Hypertension, What the Cardiologist Needs to Know. Treatment-resistant hypertension affects between 3 to 30% of hypertensives and is associated with increased cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. The very promising results of the initial uncontrolled studies on the blood pressure-lowering effect of renal denovation in treatment-resistant hypertension seem to suggest that this intervention might represent an easy solution for a complex problem. However, subsequently, data from controlled studies have tempered the enthusiasm of the medical community and the industry, although more recent studies were more promising. Conversely, these research efforts emphasize important aspects. 1. The key role of 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure and arterial stiffness measurement to identify true resistant patients. 2. The high prevalence of secondary hypertension among the population. And 3 the difficulty to identify those patients who may benefit the most from device-based interventions. Accordingly, the current guidelines suggest referring them to a hypertension specialist slash center in order to perform adequate workup and treatment strategies. The aim of this review is to provide guidance for the cardiologist on how to identify patients with treatment-resistant hypertension and elucidate the prevailing underlying pathophysiological mechanisms to define a strategy for the identification of patients with treatment-resistant hypertension who may benefit from device-based interventions and discuss results and limitations of these interventions, and finally briefly summarize the different drug-based treatment strategies. Cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of death globally. The 2010 Global Burden of Disease study estimated that cardiovascular disease caused close to 16 million deaths worldwide, accounting almost a third of all deaths, or two times as many deaths as was caused by cancer, and more than all communicable maternal, neonatal, and nutritional disorders combined. As outlined in our annual epidemiology report, Cardiovascular Disease in Europe, by Nick Townsend from the University of Oxford in the UK, Cardiovascular disease remains the most common cause of death among Europeans. Indeed, despite steady decreases in cardiovascular mortality rates across the continent, over 4 million Europeans die of cardiovascular diseases every year. The current report also presents new data in relation to mortality, morbidity and treatment for the European countries, and for the first time in the series, the authors calculated age-standardized mortality rates using the new European Standard Population, ESP. In an aging society, an increasing number of males experience a steady decrease in their circulating testosterone levels. However, the potential value of testosterone replacement therapy for cardiovascular outcomes, in particular for the prevention of myocardial infarction and stroke, is still uncertain. In the first fast-track paper, normalization of testosterone levels is associated with reduced incidence of myocardial infarction and mortality in men. Rajat Barua from the Kansas City VA Medical Center in Missouri, USA, examined the relationship between normalization of total testosterone after testosterone replacement therapy and cardiovascular events, as well as all-cause mortality in patients with previous history of myocardial infarction and stroke. 
the authors retrospectively examined 83,010 male veterans with low total testosterone levels. The subjects were categorized into 1. Group 1 with testosterone replacement with resulting normalization of total testosterone levels. 2. Group 2 with testosterone replacement without normalization of total testosterone levels. And 3. Group 3, which did not receive testosterone. In Group 1, all-cause mortality, hazard ratio 0.44, risk of myocardial infarction, hazard ratio 0.76, and stroke, hazard ratio 0.64, were all significantly lower than in Group 3 and Group 2. Of note, there was no difference in myocardial infarction or stroke risk between Group 2 and 3. The authors conclude that in this largest observational cohort, with the longest follow-up to date, Normalization of total testosterone levels with testosterone replacement was associated with a significant reduction in all-cause mortality, myocardial infarction, and stroke. In the third clinical research paper manuscript entitled Body Mass Index Prevention and Cardiovascular Risk, Boris Hansel and colleagues from the Petit-Salpêtrière Hospital in Paris, France, aim to explore the relation between BMI and cardiovascular disease, CVD, and the influence of optimal medical therapy, OMT, on this relationship. Due to the continued importance of atherosclerotic vascular disease as a cause of morbidity and mortality, registries that document the real-world situation remain important. The REACH registry is an international prospective cohort of 54,285 patients with or at high risk of atherosclerosis, with a follow-up of up to four years. In the current analysis, patients were categorized according to baseline BMI. Optimal medical therapy was defined as four cardioprotective medications, i.e. a statin, ACE inhibitors slash angiotensin II receptor blocker, beta blocker, and antiplatelet agent. In primary and secondary prevention, a reverse J-shaped curve to best describe the relationship between BMI and outcomes. In secondary prevention, the highest adjusted risks were observed for underweight patients with a hazard ratio of 1.97 and 1.29 respectively for cardiovascular mortality and events. The lowest hazard ratios were noted in grade 2 and grade 3 obese patients with values of 0.73 and 0.80 respectively. The proportion of patients on optimal medical therapy increased with BMI from 10 to 36%. The apparent protection conferred by obesity persisted in patients receiving optimal medical therapy. The authors concluded that, as in other conditions such as infarction and heart failure, an obesity paradox exists in patients with or at high risk of atherosclerosis. The intensity of use of evidence-based preventative medications does not account for this paradoxical protection associated with obesity. This paper is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Stefan Anker from the Charité Campus Virchow Klinikum in Berlin, Germany. Mitral regurgitation is an increasingly common condition. Although outcomes are excellent, if treated timely and appropriately, patients with reduced ejection fraction are more difficult to manage and have worse outcomes, although mitroclip has been proposed as a possibility. The paper Management and Outcomes in Patients with Moderate to Severe Functional Mitral Regurgitation and Severe Left Ventricular Dysfunction by Zainab Samad and colleagues from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, USA, focuses on this very issue. 
For the period 1995 to 2010, the Duke Echocardiography Laboratory and Duke Data Bank for Cardiovascular Diseases databases were merged to identify patients with moderate or severe functional MR and an ejection fraction of 30% or less, or a left ventricular end-systolic diameter of over 55 millimeters. Among 1,441 patients, 59% had a history of hypertension, about a third were diabetics, 83% had symptomatic heart failure, and about half had coronary artery disease. Past revascularization was noted in 26%. At one year, three-quarters of the patients were treated medically. Percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, was performed in 114 patients. Coronary artery bypass graft surgery in 82, combined with valve surgery in 96, and mitral valve surgery alone in 55 patients. Amongst patients with CAD, compared with medical therapy alone, the treatment strategies of bypass surgery, hazard ratio 0.56, and bypass with mitral valve surgery, hazard ratio 0.58, were associated with long-term event-free survival benefit. PCI had a borderline significant result with a hazard ratio of 0.78. However, the relationship with isolated mitral valve surgery did not achieve significance, hazard ratio 0.64. Amongst those with coronary disease, mitral valve surgery was associated with a significant event-free survival benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.71. In the entire cohort, the use of mitral valve surgery was associated with higher event-free survival, hazard ratio 0.69. Thus, in patients with moderate or severe mitral regurgitation and severe left ventricular dysfunction, Mortality was substantial amongst those selected for bypass and or mitral valve surgery. Although performed in a small number of patients, this was independently associated with higher event-free survival. The implications of this paper in the current environment are critically discussed in an editorial by Alec Fahanian from the Hôpital Bichat in Paris. Although not as common as in the past, Endocarditis is a known serious condition, affecting both native and in particular mechanical and biological prosthetic valves. In a most interesting fast track, healthcare-associated prosthetic heart valve, aortic vascular graft, and disseminated mycobacterium chymehazra infections subsequent to open heart surgery, Barbara Hasser and colleagues from the University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland described the first-time patient's characteristics clinical manifestations, microbiologic findings, therapeutic measures, including surgical reinterventions, of completely novel disease entity in 10 patients with disseminated mycobacterium chimera infections subsequent to open-heart surgery. Infections originated from the heater-cooler unit of the heart-lung machine. Patients comprise a one-year-old child and nine adults with a median age of 61 years and a median time from cardiac surgery to diagnosis of 21 months. All patients had prosthetic material-associated infections, i.e. either prosthetic valve endocarditis, aortic graft infection, myocarditis, or infection of the prosthetic material following banding of the pulmonary artery. Extracardiac manifestations preceded cardiovascular disease in some cases. Despite targeted antimicrobial therapy, mycobacterium chimera infection required cardiosurgical reinterventions in eight patients. Six out of ten patients experienced breakthrough infections, of which four were fatal. 
The authors conclude that healthcare-associated infections due to M. chimera occurred in patients subsequent to cardiac surgery with extracorporeal circulation and implantation of prosthetic material. Infections became clinically apparent after a time lag of months to years. Mycobacterium chimera infections are easily missed by routine bacterial diagnostics, and outcome is poor despite long-term antimycobacterial therapy, probably because of biofilm formation hindering the eradication of the pathogen. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.